Good morning. Um, this is the week that we're unpacking or, or being, you know, intentional about the teaching that we heard in our reset conference with uh, Dr. Chuck Davis and Dr. Ingrid Davis. And when Chuck began, he really began with this idea of the goal of repentance or the goal of our change is a heart toward God, a heart that's turning to God. And I've been uh, unpacking that aspect of the heart that turns towards God. It, it, what it means is it's not just emotionally, but rather the heart in the biblical understanding of the heart is that it's the control center of your be- of your being. It's the place where your deepest commitments are. It's it's the vault of your trust, of what you really trust. It's the mechanism by which you trust things and you decide what you trust, what you value. The heart is, in some ways, the most uniquely you uh, part of you. So the orientation of the heart, the, the, the turning of the heart, the direction of the heart is everything. And so we've been talking about not only the fact of a heart that turns to God, but a heart that is oriented toward freedom. And this is one of the major themes of Paul's teaching in Galatians, in his letter to the Galatians. There were these religious leaders who had come uh, behind the Apostle Paul to the churches he, is, he had established. And they were, they were teaching that, yes, you, you need to have faith in Jesus, but they were teaching that you had to perform and you had to keep uh, the law. And Paul was just utterly adamant that it was Jesus plus nothing. That if you make the decision and orient your heart that you will gain acceptance with God by keeping the law, then Jesus is no benefit to you whatsoever. You negate the gospel. And he, he basically said, anyone that teaches another gospel than this, let them be damned. But in the passage that we're going to look at today, in terms of orienting our heart toward freedom, is that having spoken so directly about legalism and how it is of no benefit whatsoever, that the religious legalist is condemned along with the irreligious, then Paul turns his, his words and says, now, what you do with your freedom, both how you gain it, how you maintain it, what you do with your freedom is essential as well. And so here is uh, Galatians 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, and this is the key, this is the key word, freedom orients your heart to love, he says. Through love, serve one another. And then he says something interesting, because you see, he has said, if you're trying to gain an acceptance with God through the law, then Christ becomes of no benefit for you. But if you have gained and you have realized that by faith you have received acceptance, 
that you're treated in Christ as righteous as Christ. Then he says, then the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Uh, just to remind you, the Apostle Paul was one who had kept the law more devoutly than any of us. But what he had found is in his devotion to the law, he had no freedom to love. Those who were, who were more righteous than him, he hated. Those who were less righteous than him, he hated. He had no time for them. He competed with those who knew more, and he disdained those who knew less. See, if we are trying to justify ourselves by our own performance, then everybody else is a competitor for the acceptance of God. And so Paul is, is explaining that when you truly, when you truly orient your heart to freedom, your heart becomes a place where love can reside, where love can be received and love can be distributed. And Paul is calling this true freedom. And you were called, he says, to this true freedom. Now let's talk about freedom just a little bit. Maybe be a little philosophical here. In the Western world, that I'm a part of, freedom is probably the highest value. So there are those who are critics of Christianity, and their criticism is that Christianity limits and restricts freedom. They actually would say that Christianity is an authoritarian system of do's and don'ts, which are backed up by heavenly sanctions or eternal punishments for the do's and the don'ts. So, one French philosopher writing about freedom said, there will only be true freedom when all the kings and all the priests are all hanged or strangled. This comes from a, a very secular model of freedom. I am free when there is nothing in my way, when nothing can block me from what I want. I can do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting anyone else is the idea of freedom in our secular society. Recently, uh, I was watching a documentary uh, of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow and all of that uh, situation that played out where he was having an affair with his adopted daughter and, and uh, just devastated that family, devastated Mia Farrow. And so you have this, this documentary, and, and Woody Allen says when he ends up with this, I think she was 18, 19-year-old um, stepdaughter, and he said, the heart wants what the heart wants. So that's his, that is an application of this idea of freedom. And the idea that the heart can have whatever it wants is monstrous. I mean, it's, it ends up being incredibly evil, not freedom. Uh, matter of fact, the, the whole idea of that kind of freedom has to posit that there is no God. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre said, no God, then I can conceive myself to be whatever I want myself to be. So most people 
despite Sartre's uh, view, most people still believe there is a God, but they would rather a very minimalistic view of God, a God who protects you but demands nothing of you. Uh, there is a, an aspect of believing in God where people disdain anyone who has a certainty about God. So the idea is you just really can't be sure of his will. So then, again, we go back to this kind of secular freedom that the heart wants what it wants. And so, therefore, your truest expression of yourself is to get or to do what the heart wants. Now, that, that view of freedom is actually bondage. And, it, and it's actually impossible. It is impossible because we're going to see that the freedom that the Bible talks about always is expressing itself in love. And there's a quality to love that just doing whatever you want does not fit. And yet, the Bible is just dripping with the language of freedom from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When Jesus speaks of his mission, he uses the Messianic passage of Isaiah 61 and he says, this is what I'm about in my ministry and my mission is to set the captives free, to release the prisoners, to release the oppressed, to declare the favorable year of the Lord. Freedom is central to the mission of Jesus. The Apostle John, the beloved apostle, says, when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. See, Christianity looks at that secular view of of freedom and says basically you're saying sin and sin to us is slavery and salvation from sin is freedom if if you call sin freedom well it, it fails on its own terms if anyone or if everyone is free to do whatever they want then you can never say that anything is wrong now you know there's that little caveat you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt someone. But even that, as long as it doesn't hurt someone, what, we don't even understand the damage we do spiritually and emotionally by doing whatever we want. But if this idea is you're free to do whatever you want whenever you want, then nothing is ever wrong and there's no challenge to anything. And yet, what does Paul do here? In the name of freedom... Paul challenges these Galatian Christians to not use their freedom in the wrong way and especially to not use their freedom to deny or to, to, to live in some other way other than out of love for each other. One of the brilliant, and this, this may be too philosophical for a morning devotional, but I just can't help it. I like G.K. Chesterton an awful lot. His books have been meaningful to me, particularly on evangelism and different things, because he has a whole different way of looking at uh, how to appeal to people. But he was a brilliant Christian writer, British, and he, he wrote, he says, the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty. Therefore, he can never really be a revolutionist. The fact that he doubts everything really gets in the way when he wants to denounce, when he wants to speak out against anything. For all denunciation implies 
a moral doctrine of some kind. See that he says, if you have no, you know, you have no absolutes, if you have no moral basis of anything, then you have nothing to really denounce. And so what you what you see is, he says, the man who has this kind of skeptical philosophical principles is a man who cannot and will not be able to attack morality because there is no morality. So he cannot, in a way, revolt against anything because he doesn't believe in anything. So he actually says it this way, by rebelling against everything, modern man has lost his right to rebel against anything. The new rebel is a skeptic, therefore he cannot really be a rebel. And I know that this is a, it's a little complicated, but the fact is very few people are understanding the contradictions in which they live. I remember once seeing a pop star who was angry at her parents because her parents believed in Christian teaching, Christian values, and she called them like do-gooders and goody-two-shoes and all this kind of stuff. And she said she didn't believe in any of it. And I was like, she doesn't really understand the contradiction of what she's saying. Because if you don't believe in anything, then what they believe is absolutely fine too. So how can you denounce anything if you don't believe in anything? And so the, the idea that we are looking at in our modern world is such a deceptive lie of freedom. You see, real freedom engages with the complexities of the human heart. Here's what Paul talks about in Galatians 5. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're actually opposed to each other, so much so that they keep you from doing the very things you want to do. You see, in a way, Paul is stating the obvious, but it's, it's, a, it's an important obvious issue. And that is that the human heart is full of contradictions. I mean, a simple way to look at this is that many of us will say, man, I really need to lose some weight. But we'll also say, oh man, I love ice cream. Well, those two things, the love of ice cream and the need to lose weight are contradictory desires. One has to be rejected for the other to be realized. If I'm going to have ice cream, then I'm going to have to get over the fact that I want to lose weight. If I want to lose weight, then I'm going to have to get over this huge desire for ice cream. It's as simple as that. But here's the complexity. Do I know, do I understand my contradictory desires And do I understand which of my desires are liberating and which of my desires are destructive? This is what Paul is saying. Real freedom is the the ability to want willingly, with, with wholeness in my heart, the freeing, the liberating desires, which are the ones that I actually need. Freedom is not the freedom to do whatsoever I want, but freedom is to discern which desires of my heart are truly freeing, which ones are truly 
liberating. And to get to the place where not only am I free from the, from the bondage of the evil desires which will destroy me, but with my heart, I begin to want the right desires. I begin to desire the liberating desires because I desire the purpose that God created me for. See, it's a true liberation for the purpose, the meaning, and the design of my life so much that I am free from the competing voices in my head and the competing desires that those voices express. And Paul says something really true and I think incredibly human, revealed by God but incredibly human, is that real freedom always has to be compatible with love. Verse 13, it's not merely I don't I do what I do so long as I don't hurt people. What Paul says, I am free from destructive desires so that I am truly able and, and, and my freedom is compatible with love. Um, I, I've done, I can't even count how many, how many marriages, how many uh, uh, weddings I've done. And I have seen, as, and, and to my greatest heartbreak, that there are people who get up at that altar and who promise to love unconditionally, all the while having, having no ability, no capability, no, no real desire to do so. I try to sniff that out <laughs> before it ever happens, but it still happens because... The issue is they want, they want whatever that, that marriage signifies, whatever that wedding experience signifies, but they, they are not free to love their own hearts and their contradictory desires are not free to love what they're promising and in the way that they're promising. See, what Paul is saying is when you truly have freedom, you begin to realize that God has placed you in a new capacity to realize your true potential, that, that that true potential is love. You see, if anything in your heart keeps you from being able to love and to love well, then that is not freedom. That's the flesh. And it wars against the spirit. It was interesting, uh, I think I was listening to Tim Keller talk about this, and he talked about a French novelist. And the French novelist was writing about freedom and love, and here was, here was his view of this. He was like, he said, I was obviously not free when I was in love. Fortunately, I was not in love at all times, so when I was not in love, I had the freedom to do what I wanted to do. Now, there's, a, there's some interesting truth and insight in this novelist's statement. In his, in his clear understanding of love, that love binds you to someone else. But his problem is that when he sees himself connected in such a way to someone else, he doesn't see himself as free. He only saw himself free if he was not in love. Now, Here's what Paul is saying, and it's contrary to this novelist and contrary to secular wisdom. He's saying if, if your idea of freedom is independence, 
then love becomes the enemy of your freedom. Because when, it, when then you are truly loving someone and serving someone, then in your mind you're no longer free. But the problem is, if that's your view of freedom, then it's going to keep you from truly loving. You'll be like Woody Allen who says, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. And so if the view of freedom keeps you from loving, then that view of freedom is actually destructive and will keep you from your truest self and will keep you from your truest purposes and meaning. What is Paul talking about here? And this is so important. Is he saying we have to have freedom from our old self because our old self cannot love? Our old self cannot receive love and our old self cannot give love. I'm not saying our old self can't feel affection, can't be enamored, can't be obligated or any of those things, but it cannot give sacrificial, unconditional love because it's incapable of doing so. You know, there are some of us who are Christians who still define ourselves by our, by our old nature. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But you and I are more than that. We are new creations. We have new hearts. We have a new nature. True freedom comes as you begin to accept that new identity, to recognize that a completely new supernatural DNA has penetrated your old DNA. It was not received because of performance on your part. It was received by faith. God did this when you were an orphan, when you were not a part of the family of God. The Holy Spirit came into your life and declared Abba, Father, in a prophetic way and changed your identity and changed your status. And your own heart, penetrated by that new status and that new identity, cries back to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and calls Him your Father. His Father becomes your Father. But it has to be lived out by faith as well. To begin to nurture this new identity, this new nature, this new heart. See, whatever you give importance to, whatever you nurture, is going to grow stronger. If you nurture your old identity, it will stay strong. If you nurture your new identity, it will grow stronger. In a way... I believe that you could look at it as your soul is somewhat, somewhat that idea of the guard of your personality, the guard of the way you think, the way you feel, the way you decide things. Your spirit is your identity. Having been made alive with Christ, the place of the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, in some ways is a question will you allow your spirit to breach the walls of your soul? Will you allow your spirit to be the source now of your soul? Not, not your appetites, not your old past experiences, but will you allow the, the spirit to have freedom to breach the very walls of your soul so that it invades your personality, so that your instincts and your rea- reactions become transformed? Now, the problem is, for that freedom to actually happen, We really have to come to the Lord 
with this idea of consent. Lord, I give you consent to breach the walls of my heart. I give you consent to breach the walls of my soul. You understand, when Paul goes on and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he's not talking about how suddenly you know you become more gentle, you become more loving because you, you try harder. No, it's because you have given consent to the very personality of the Holy Spirit, the very character of Christ, to breach the walls of your heart and your soul. But in order for that to happen, in order for that to happen, you have to allow that the Lord Himself will bring about that freedom, a freedom to love and to be loved. And what I find is that when I open up and I consent to the Lord to be the bringer of my freedom, to breach the walls of my heart and my soul, is that He shows me where the strongholds are. And those strongholds are not strongholds of freedom. Those are strongholds of lies and bondage. And what He will always do is He will come after the demonic influence in our lives. But He will also often heal the damage of the past memories. Uh, the, the Lord wants to enter even into the pain of your past and to redeem it. And instead of it being a place of only brokenness, He wants it to become a divine stronghold where He gives you the beauty for your ashes, where He takes your scars and He redeems those scars and says, I will not allow you to waste your sorrows. But that means that you have to be willing, if you're really going to be free, if you're going to be oriented towards freedom in your heart, that the Lord is allowed to. You're not going to resist. The Lord is allowed to say, here's where the demonic oppression is. Here is where the broken memories, here's where the pain is. Um, I need to wrap this up, but I'll, I'll give you two quick stories on this. The first... Um, is a demonic influence or oppression story. I was preaching in Norway, and I'd been uh, doing two weeks of prayer summits, counseling. Lisa and I were exhausted. We were going to get on the plane, come back to New York on a Monday, but it was Sunday night, had one more preaching uh, obligation. And as I was preaching, this sense of anointing came on me. I, uh, I was hoping not to have to pray for people at the end. I was really tired. But this anointing came on me and, and you know, I was somewhat resistant because I was thinking, man, I'm going to be here praying with people all night. And so I gave an altar call and about 50 people came forward in this small church. And I knew I was, you know, and they all, because you're the speaker, they all want you to pray for them. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be here so long. And I was so tired. And um, instead, as I went to go pray with somebody, this woman pushes through the crowd, comes up to me and starts yelling at me in English. Mostly I was doing through translation, which is, is doubly tiring. But she starts yelling at me in English. And she's like, I don't believe a single word that you have to say. And she just began to just berate me and my message and... I don't really want to be here. It's my night to clean the church, so I have no choice to be here. And I, I was so tired, I didn't think about it. I just said, ma'am, 
would you like me to deliver you from that demon who's speaking to me right now? Or would you like Jesus to deliver you from that demon who's speaking to me right now? And, uh, you know, I, I didn't think through what I'd said, but I just said it out loud. And she looked at me and she goes, yes, I would like that very much. And so I did a deliverance right there. I bound that evil spirit, took back its ground, sent it to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes. And then she ran off. I thought, oh boy, I got in trouble now. And she ran off. She got her husband. And she said, I need to repent to my husband. And she started repenting. We had prayer for them. Then she ran off again and went and found the rest of her family. They were all part of the church. And she repented. And they had this amazing liberation of the marriage and the family. And reconciliation was taken. They were weeping. They were loving on each other. Now, why am I telling you that story is because if I had just counseled that demon or just kept arguing with that woman, all I was doing was arguing with the de demonic influence. We would have gotten nowhere. But the fact that we were, she was willing to be liberated from the demonic influence immediately, I'm talking in a very short amount of time, her marriage was reconciled, her, her family was reconciled, and it was it was so awesome. And I all of a sudden had tremendous energy. And then uh, everybody up there had the same issues. So uh, we started doing deliverance with all these people. And, and 50 people got set free that night. Incredible, some healing miracles and some other things. But if we had just done counseling without dealing with the demonic opposition, we would have never seen the breakthrough. Now, that's not always the case, but that was the case in that particular instance. You cannot argue with a demon, and a demon will not allow you to get healed because they utilize the place of brokenness to render you passive so that you feel like you will never get better. That is not freedom, you see. So when we come to Jesus, we have to realize that we will not get free if we will not deal with the ground and the access and the influence that the enemy has had in our life. But one of the biggest things that I've found over the years is the enemy loves to use emotional brokenness, pain. The enemy is attracted to pain. In some ways, what happens is pain connected to a lie about the pain can develop into a conclusion about life, God, yourself, and every other thing. So if we don't deal with the pain, and the pain is held by the memory, then the lie continues to have its effect until I will be healed of the pain and then renounce the lie. And so what we see very often is, is people who want to be free but who will not let themselves go back and deal with their past. It's not, friends, under the blood if all it is is under the rug. We have to be humble enough, but we also have to be courageous enough to realize that our past is a place that can nurture our resistance to the Holy Spirit, which is a resistance to our freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. And do not, he says, use your freedom as a place that keeps you from a full capacity to love. In Jesus' name, amen.